This is John Shannon with Radio Free Galisteo, and today I am speaking with Brant McDuff. He is a conservation educator and taxidermy historian who writes about wildlife economics. Today, we'll be talking with him about his new book, The Shotgun Conservationist, Why Environmentalists Should Love Hunting. Brant, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Okay, so I think there are probably a number of people who would say, uh, how is somebody who hunts a conservationist? People who do hunt understand, I think there's a longstanding tradition of it, part of conservation, but I think the politics of this have been sort of turned uh, upside down. And so now it's, it's sort of like, if you hunt, you're not conserving, you're just, just destroying. Why is that not so? Yeah, I mean, that's what I grew up thinking. I was a, a, a vehement anti-hunter when I was a little kid, not really actively, just sort of in theory. I loved animals. I still love animals. I made animals my life. Uh, so, of course, on the surface level, it seems to make sense, right? Like, if you love animals, if you love nature, how could you possibly go out and shoot an animal? Uh, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but just the teeniest tiniest bit of investigation will answer all of your questions. The problem is people don't spend a lot of time investigating hunting if they don't like it or they're not interested in it themselves. When I started loving animals, I just wanted to know all the fun facts, right? As a kid, you just want to know like, how good is a bear's sense of smell? Kind of stuff like that. Sure. And then as I made wildlife study more a part of my career, then you learn about larger systems at play, the economics, the history, the government side of things as that relates to laws and taxes. And you start to put the pieces together and they come together very quickly. So the economic side of it was always interesting for me. And that argument is is very simple there are competing industries all over the world and if you have so i talk a lot about america mostly but i do talk about some international issues and you can't really talk about hunting without talking about africa and that's mm. always such a hot button issue for people right so sort of the the simple economic argument takes me to africa first and that is okay, you've got a piece of land. It can either be agriculture uh, for crops or livestock, or it can be land where we're going to drill or we're going to mine, or it can just be developed. Let's put up a bunch of houses, or it can just be habitat. It can just be a bunch of trees and animals and stuff. The problem is the trees and the animals and stuff, they have to earn as much money as the logging or the agriculture or the they have to put up their own money to compete with those industries so in africa and america all around the world you have these competing industries and if animals can pay their own way then habitat tends to stay habitat and that's kind of what happens in africa you see increasing number of giraffes in southern african countries uh countries that allow giraffe hunting whereas countries that do not allow giraffe hunting, you see diminishing giraffe numbers. And that's just a real simple economic argument. The giraffe has value 
and therefore people keep it around. And I get into a lot of you know deeper aspects of the economic arguments there, but that's kind of how it works around the world. In America, we're really lucky to have an incredible government system that was set up by hunters and other conservationists, environmentalists together to protect wildlife and habitat for the public and for future generations. Right. So the the argument is if you have somebody who's stewarding these animals, they're actually they're actually in a in a better place as a result of it. So as long as as long as they have a value in hunting, then they're they're not going to go away is is the argument. Yeah, that's the yeah, that's the simplest way to put it. Uh, the the catchphrase is if it pays it stays. But if you give value to it, and it really people make it about the animals because the animals are more interesting, right? Especially, you know, that, that was how I got into it. I like, I like elk. Yeah. Thinking about elk more than just like the forest, nature. The, those are such broad topics and understanding of ecology and, and habitat spaces. But if you put the focus on an animal, people can get on board more readily because, right, elk are cool and cute and you can look at them and they're fun and they're doing stuff. Otherwise, you're just kind of looking at a forest, but it really is the forest. It's the habitat that we need to save the most. Otherwise, the elk don't have anywhere to live. So it all comes back to the habitat, even if the focus is on the animals. So groups like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, they will just take money and they will buy land and they just give it back to the elk because they understand the importance of that winter range that they need and the habitat that the elk need. You can't just give an elk pocket money, but you can protect the places where they live from being used for other things. So when people talk about consumptive outdoor recreation, they think of hunting as this consumptive thing hunters are taking from the wild. Whereas they don't think of skiing or mountain biking as consumptive, but it very much is because it diminishes the habitat ranges of those animals. The hunter wants to go into the forest and see it totally unchanged. They just, they don't want trails. They don't want anything. And then other outdoor recreational activities, they require changing of the habitat. And that's not great for animals. Yeah, I think that's a really great argument. And I didn't really understand uh, that element of it until, uh, and I, I didn't start hunting until fairly late in life. But the idea of going into the forest and really getting back to our, uh, you know, uh, primal nature, which was, we're, we're in this system together, or at least, you know, we, we were uh, as uh, uh, early, uh, our early ancestors were really part of this cycle with the animals in the forest or wherever, wherever we were habitating. And um, you do get a sense of that when you're out there alone and everything else is going on. You're listening to the, to the birds or the squirrels who might tip you off on an animal approaching. And then you get to see the animals approaching. And it's not like you're, you're gunning down every elk you see, Uh, you know, you're, you're picking the one specific one you have a tag for, but even so you're, you're really connected to that environment. Suddenly 
It's not like, uh, yeah. you know, it's not like you're going down and, and shooting them off a racetrack or a, a ski slope or something. Right. And I think people do have a, a fundamental misunderstanding of what, how difficult hunting is. I think they think it's very easy because you have a rifle and they don't, but that is the teeniest, tiniest part of it. Yeah. And, you know, they, they wouldn't be very good at being prey animals over the last, you know, six million years uh, if they weren't good at evading predators. That's their job. And so it is really fascinating to become a part of nature like that again when we so rarely have the chance these days. And I think people misunderstand or just genuinely just don't realize how connected to nature you must be to be a, a hunter or a successful one at least mm -hmm. um if i have a successful day in the field i think about what did i do right and if i'm unsuccessful i think about okay what didn't i do right how, how much time didn't I spend preparing for this? How much more time should I have spent preparing for this? Mm -hmm. The the kill, if it happens, is such a small part of that involvement in the natural world and what it brings to each person because you really do have to know what nature is up to, not just the elk. You have to learn the cues from nature to learn about the elk or whatever else you're hunting and that creates this connection that makes people so passionate about the outdoors because you are truly connected to it as opposed to just sort of thinking about it from afar and i see that a lot living in i live in new york city so i see that a lot with my friends who ask me questions about like, well, I don't get it. How can you love nature so much or love animals so much? And then you go out and you kill something. And I think there's a misunderstanding of just what, how much dedication to the outdoors, to nature, having that type of lifestyle requires. Right. And uh, I mean, really, it's as simple as looking back at uh, the the Native Americans who we basically have pushed out of their territory. Um, I mean, they were living in balance with with these animals and and, and harvesting them the same you know, in, the, in the same token. Uh, and they were a big part of how they how their society operated. OK, well, I, I don't I, I'm certain there are people we're, we're not going to change some people's minds on on the, the value. <laughs> this um but uh, it certainly would make it, it would be worth them maybe finding out why certain people are as invested as they are now in addition uh you have um a background in uh taxidermy you're a taxidermy historian what 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 does a taxidermy historian do oh you mean you haven't talked to six of them today already <laughs> no no i have not now, i have talked to a taxidermist in the past in fact one is doing some work for me but not a historian <laughs> yeah i think so i i enjoy doing taxidermy i teach beginner classes for people who have never done it and probably will never do it again they just kind of want to try it once as a kitschy thing so I teach those kind of classes. I'm not doing moose heads in my Brooklyn apartment. But the history aspect of it always fascinated me because you can kind of trace 
the history of, I mean, certainly it's natural history and the history of exploration through taxidermy, because if you were discovering things about animals in faraway places, you had to figure out how to preserve them or bring them back so you could study them further. So there's a lot of history threaded through taxidermy that you can learn about. And then I've also always been fascinated about death and death cultures uh, throughout the world and how people relate to life and death. And I find a lot of that conversation comes into hunting and taxidermy. So as long as far as the hunting goes, as long as death is being outsourced to someone else, people don't have to think about it. They don't have to worry about it. They'll pick up some, you know, whatever cheap meat at the grocery store, or they'll buy a, a veggie patty without any thought to what kind of habitat that thing had to come from. And uh, so people like to sort of outsource the death to other things, other places that they don't have to think about. And then when it comes to taxidermy, you see this, this reverence for the animal and keeping it around as opposed to it being a disposable thing. Right. Uh, so in, in my book, I have a back-to-back -back illustration of a uh, like a dining room or a study, and there's uh, some traditional some traditional shoulder mounts. And then below it, there's the same study with the shoulder mount of like a, a pig and a turkey and a cow. You just sort of see the the difference in the way people relate to animals that way, the, the reverence for the wild animals and sort of the way people think of livestock as disposable. And so I was interested in learning about that, that idea of taxidermy as memorial. And that gets into the whole trophy aspect of my book and things like that. But the, but yeah, taxidermy, I just find interesting. Uh, and I can't have, you know, I can't have a whole live bear in my apartment, unfortunately. But I can go to the Museum of Natural History and I can see these dioramas and they have fantastic stories, wild stories, all connected to the history of conservation in America, especially at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Boone and Crockett was founded there and a lot of other conservation groups and conservation laws came out of that museum and its connection to Teddy Roosevelt and some other conservation greats as well. This is Radio Free Galisteo. Great conversations from the Galisteo Basin. Radio Free Galisteo is listener supported. Go to www.radiofreegalisteo.com and click on the red donate button in the upper right hand corner to become an active, sustaining member of Radio Free Galisteo. You brought up trophies, and so as far as uh, my hunting and trophies, I mean, I, I've actually have taken the hides off of some animals, which I then I'm, I'm using either as a, uh, a cover on a bed or uh, uh, even as part of artwork. But I've eaten everything I've shot. <laughs> yep. So the folks that are hunting lions, this gets back, I guess, to the economic issue that you mentioned before. They're not eating those, are they? Right. Yeah. So the, and the, the economics is, is twofold. It's part of the, the hunters who solely hunt to eat. 
and the hunters who travel to hunt specific game in some you know international location but so if we're talking about back in the u.s and people who hunt to eat so what i say is that at the once the freezer is empty there's still something a little left uh the memorial of that experience so i am not a I am not a great hunter. I am not uh, that experienced a hunter. I've only been hunting for six years. Mm. And so I have some little memorials of the three-point buck that I shot and the uh, my, my very first buck, which was a, a button buck in an overpopulated area of New Jer- the New Jersey <laughs> suburbs. But sure, I kept those. Is that a trophy? Yeah, that's as much a trophy to me as a, a whole lion would be to someone who spent $200,000 to hunt a lion in Africa. So there's part of the language of trophy. What does that mean? Yeah. And then there's the economic side of trophy where, okay, if you hunt in America just purely to fill the freezer, or if you're hunting because you want the biggest rack to put on your wall, at the end of the day, the money is kind of going to the same place, mm. and that is habitat. So if you're hunting for the freezer, great. You're basically paying, quote unquote, with your excise taxes and your license fees. You're paying into the habitat protection systems in America. If you're going to a ranch in America that is protected especially for hunters and they shell out big money to hunt private land well they're still shelling out money to hunt on land that is protected for hunting which means it has to be really viable wildlife habitat so at the end of the day that landowner is making money off of nature's habitat and keeping that habitat really healthy and thriving versus selling off all their land to be developed into a new ski lodge or something like that. So within the hunting community, there's lots of arguing about high fence or ranches or this type of public land, this type of private land. But as far as I'm concerned, if it is protected habitat for animals and it is making money doing that, just being trees and forest and land for animals, Great, I'll take it. And that kind of thing happens in Africa too. And you can get really specific with different species and how they how they have to be managed in order to keep populations sustainable. Mm-hmm. But even with um, so, like in in uh, in Africa, countries that allow giraffe hunting, they have increasing numbers of giraffe and uh, the countries that don't have decreasing numbers of giraffe and that's because you're making the animals valuable right right and you can eat giraffe absolutely <laughs> yeah i don't I've, I, you know i've never eaten lion i've never eaten giraffe but um yeah you're in new york state i used to i used to live in upstate new york uh elmira ithaca finger lakes region which is good uh whitetail country uh yeah. as i'm sure you you know Hunting has decreased so much in the state, and tell me if I'm wrong here, that it is now overpopulated with deer. Uh, and subsequently, there's a, is that 
my understanding is that has been directly related related to the increase in Lyme disease, for example. One, am I right? <laughs> and two, what can be done about that overpopulation, if, if I am correct? Yeah, so uh, hunter numbers have been declining nationally, but there was a big uptick in hunter recruitment during the pandemic. People mm. finally found themselves, and that was a combination of both brand new hunters as well as people taking up hunting once again because they finally had time to do it. Mm. And there were also people taking it up for the first time because they they wanted to be self-sufficient or they had time to think about their eating habits. And when when things like getting back to nature are it's such a conversation for people and then they realize oh yeah hunting is a part of getting back to nature it's also it's wild food sourcing and it is being responsible for what you're taking out of the environment and putting back into it so there was a big there's a big uptick in hunter recruitment during the pandemic those numbers have lessened slightly since since then but the but what you see with deer populations is definitely it's very regional so there'll be huge spikes in certain areas i hunt an area of new jersey that is just flooded with deer i'm right across the water from staten island and staten yeah. island has so many deer and they don't know what to do with them and the government wanted to do the government wanted to do a controlled cull. It would have been fast, easy, done by a professional group. But they were so worried about the backlash mm. that they went with a, an, a very expensive and convoluted system of giving the deer vasectomies on the island. So, they, I mean, just... Oh my. So this, I think it was like $5 million more than they wanted to spend or something like that. But it was, it was a crazy amount of money spent giving deer vasectomies on Staten Island to try and control populations. But if you think about, it's a renewable resource. We have deer, we've got wild hogs, we've got invasive species, we've got native species, and we can source from the wild without depleting it. We learned our lesson in the 1930s, we put programs in place to make sure the decimation of the bison and the passenger pigeon, stuff like that would never happen again. Right. And America's been doing a, a gangbusters job. There's no place in the world that has outdoor land and wildlife access to its citizens like America does. And the system to pay and put money back into that system annually. Hunting's a part of it. And I'm, I'll go off on a tangent all day long, but back to ticks. I believe the current, uh, it's a combination of issues, but yes, absolutely. It's deer, it's deer populations. It's also just extra mild winters. The ticks don't go dormant like they normally do. They're staying out longer. They're, um, they're spreading during times of the year they wouldn't normally spread. Uh, they're getting carried around by by more deer than usual. A lot of uh, mice, 
Um, so it's a big uh, combination of factors. But yeah, I, in fact, I think I heard about a new tick-borne illness just today on the radio. T tech, I think there's 200 plus uh, tick-borne diseases. And I just heard about a new one today and it can transmit in 15 minutes. Oh. So if you're out sitting in the turkey woods all day from sun up uh, from, from pre-dawn to noon as our hours are in New York State, you could just be sitting there waiting for a turkey and get some kind of crazy new tick disease. So it's uh, ticks are a big problem. They've been having huge issues with them in the Northeast. You know, Maine is losing moose to ticks. That's how bad they are. Wow. That's a shame. What would you say is one of the main takeaways you want people to get from this book? So the book is, I, I wrote a book, especially for people who don't want to read it. It's a very niche marketing tactic. <laughs> but um, if, you are, if you are interested in wildlife economics, if you're interested in animals and habitat and how people relate to animals and how your choices in relating to animals affect wildlife and habitat it really covers all sorts of topics it's all under the lens of hunting but it is really covering the the media food systems pop culture taxes law history it really just goes all over the place giving you a little whitman sampler of how hunting relates to some different different issues when it comes to wildlife conservation and i was an anti-hunter i changed my own mind about the subject and that's just because i stayed involved with it all my life so it's because i love animals that i became a hunter and i think if you and if you read the book you'll see how and why that can happen okay sound advice uh for those of you listening who thought uh, or or think that hunting is this horrible uh, enterprise. Uh, it actually is something that, of course, humans have been doing for as long as humans have been humans. But we actually may be benefiting some of these animals uh, that uh, we're, we're otherwise so concerned about. I think that sums up your message. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Wildlife and uh, wildlife and habitat, it's it's all for them and, and hunters. You might be surprised to hear, but they are Mother Nature's biggest allies. There you go. I'm sure there are a number of gray wolves that would uh, agree with you. Um, <laughs> you've been listening to Brent McDuff, a conservation educator and taxidermy historian, as we've learned. He has a new book called The Shotgun Conservationist. Why Environmentalists Should Love Hunting. Where can people find this, Brant? So you can buy it online right now. It'll be on shelves in just a couple days, probably by the, if you, I don't know how you drop these, but probably by the time the, uh, the book drop, uh, the show drops, it will be available. And okay. it's also available as an audiobook from Hachette Audio. So you can look up the audiobook or the hard copy. If you want to know more about me or get in touch, you can find me at immortalanimals.com. And I'm on Instagram at stuff in my apartment. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, we'll put links up for those as well with the podcast. Brent, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You bet. Take care. And for Radio Free Galisteo, I'm John Shannon. Mm -hmm.